selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carbon. And I'm Al Hunt. Thanks for joining us. This week we are joined by Alabama, former Alabama Senator Doug Jones. And remember, we take your questions each episode, so write in to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. This episode is sponsored by IP Vanish, Fun Rise, and our friends at Magic Spoon. Please check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes, and we thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, you know, we've been on a hot streak with great guests. Uh, This is one week where we have the perfect guest for the week. During the Senate impeachment trial, we're going to be talking to former Alabama Senator Doug Jones, who voted to convict Trump in his first impeachment trial a year ago and was a highly regarded prosecutor in Alabama who convicted one of those racists behind the tragic Birmingham bombing, church bombing that killed those little girls. Senator, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, And you do have a unique position here. You were a juror in that first impeachment trial. You've watched at least the beginnings and the presentation of evidence in this latest trial. Can, can you draw any comparisons or delineate any differences? Yeah, Al, first of all, th- thanks for uh, having me today. I really appreciate being with you guys. Uh, well, th- the most obvious difference right now is the quality of the defense team. I mean, you had some really good lawyers for the president uh, a year ago, and I am. I was shocked when I first saw their presentation yesterday. Maybe they'll get better as the as the trial goes on. But that's a huge difference. The other thing that's that's striking though is that so much of this trial uh, will be through public record. It will be not through testimony of individuals or presentations that way, but it will be through the public record, through the videos that were captured on social media, the video captured in 
you know, the mainstream media, uh, the tweets, um, I, I, you know, people keep wanting the house managers to call witnesses. Hell, they're calling hundreds of witnesses by showing those videos. And the other trial was so much behind closed doors and there were so many nuances that you had to connect these dots. These dots are a lot bigger and they're a lot easier to connect in this trial. Well, what was your assessment of the opening <coughs> arguments by the impeachment managers, by Jamie Raskin and his colleagues? I thought they, I thought it was tremendous. Uh, I really thought they did a very good job. I have been saying uh, all along that these guys are going to need to go back, be you know, well in advance of January 6th and set the stage for what was going on, set the stage for how the president kind of ginned all this up, how he invited these folks, the most radical of the radicals, to come to Washington, D.C., and to intersperse that with his own tweets with what was going on in the real world, uh, and then the show just exactly the way they did in that 13-minute video, um, how this came together. Because I think the the defense tends is going to want to tend to look at just the, the words themselves. But the fact is the president invited a group of folks there he knew was prone to violence. And I think that they did a very, very good job setting the stage, showing the emotion. Uh, and this is an emotional issue for these senators that were sitting there who had to be hustled out um, for their own safety. I thought they did an excellent job. I think it, it, it is going to be something that you – it was a microcosm of what you're going to see over the next 16 hours uh, for the House managers and how it will come together for them. Well, I, I certainly agree with you that the contrast to the Trump lawyers was just stunning. And, and, and Mr. Castor uh, just was in so far over his head. He had, I, it, it sort of reminded me of Ross Perot's uh, running mate during the debate in 1992, where he said, where am I? Who am I? Admiral Stockton, where? And you almost had that exactly. Castor. The, the other guy was a little bit better, but, but part of the problem center is that they have such a bad case. Well, you know, look, I've got a great friend who's a defense lawyer, criminal defense lawyer in, in Texas, one of the best criminal defense lawyers I've ever seen. And he talks about the fact that, you know, uh, the, the, the role of a criminal defense lawyer is more often than not to put as much distance between his client and the facts. And that's what those guys have to do. Right. They can't, it, it is very difficult for them to make any argument on the facts. Quite frankly, uh, if I think a really, really good set of lawyers would have gotten up there and simply said, this is not a constitutional process. Here are the reasons. Thank you very much. And essentially take a knee because they know that the votes are there. They and any more than that is, you know, they just open themselves up to criticism. When you say the votes are there, we know 44 Republican senators uh, are on record now saying that the trial is not constitutional. You've sat with many of these people. You know many of them. In the, and and, and, and their, their case that it's unconstitutional flies in the face of most experts, not all, but most experts. Could you see how any of them could turn around what logic they can employ uh, as the case gets even more persuasive and then vote to convict? Yeah, I, I, look, I, I think right now, they have to be persuaded. But, you know, I heard a comment that Roy Blunt made, from, you know, Roy Blunt from Missouri yesterday, saying it, that that video was the first time that he had seen all of those videos in that context, which is kind of stunning in it it's of, of itself. Yeah. But I think the more that they show videos that haven't been seen, the more they put those pieces together, 
every senator in that chamber is going to have to dig really deep to find an excuse, in my view, not to convict and not to connect the dot that the president of the United States incited this insurrection that could have resulted in so much more devastation had the had they not got folks out of there. It it was just remarkable. And I, I do think that you you see some cracks, but the fact is that it's still going to get be hard to get 17 individuals, I think, because it's going to be really easy for them to hide behind the procedural um, aspect of, and the even though I, I believe it's a constitutional process, most legal scholars believe it's a constitutional process, there is still an argument to be made that it's not, and it just gives folks an, uh, the ability to hide behind it. Quite frankly, if they believe it's an unconstitutional process, they shouldn't even take part in it, shouldn't vote, uh, and do it that way instead of voting not guilty. James Carville. First of all, the most famous case in the history of Alabama jurisprudence is my cousin Benny. <laughs> which <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I loved that movie, and <laughs> I did too. Yeah, and, and to loop back, you know, and the first thing you learn in law school is bad facts make for bad lawyers. And however, just to the as to the constitutionality of it, the, the idea is once the Senate says it's constitutional, then it's constitutional. If you have, yeah, yeah I mean that's say that's that true. There's not a provision. I mean, the courts would have to stretch to get in the middle of this because the constitution really doesn't allow him much of a role. No, I, I think you're right. And, and I think it's, unfortunately it's a little bit, um, I, I wish there had been a process to quite frankly, to expedite that question to the U S Supreme court, since it is a constitutional issue. Um, and, and let the, let the court decide. And, and James, there may still be a way. I, I, I agree that the courts will be very, very reluctant to wade into a decision by the United States Senate on their own proceedings. That's a that's generally seen as a unique to the branch of government, the legislative branch, political question. But let's say that they do convict, and it's an argument to be made. Let's say they do convict and they strip Donald Trump of his ability to run for office again. He could challenge that then. He could come back then and say, wait a minute. This was an unconstitutional process. I'm being deprived of a constitutional right here and go. I think the courts would likely still kick it out, but at least it would give him a, an ability to, <laughs> to and some, some would say to file another frivolous lawsuit, but in, in fact, it would at least give him an avenue. Seth, so, so I'm, I'm one of the 44 senators that voted this was un, unconstitutional. Is it a reasonable thing to say, well, I thought it was unconstitutional, but 56% of the 56 senators said it was, that ergo, it's constitutional. No, I, I think that that's absolutely reasonable, and that's the that's the correct way to do it. The correct way is to say, I, I disagreed with it, but it, it the majority of the Senate, including some of my colleagues, believe this was not a close vote. Kamala Harris didn't have to break a tie. They had six Republicans. And so now you've got a job to do. I, or if, if you're one of those sitting there, I've got a job to do. And my job now is not to second guess what a majority of the Senate did, but to vote on the merits of the case and the facts of the case and whether or not this act 
was impeachable? And if so, uh, should he be stripped from the ability to hold office again? We're in the same place here, Senator. That once they said it was constitutional, then it de facto becomes constitutional. <laughs> right. right. That's right. That's exactly right. And, the only, and if they want to continue to protest, then don't vote. Doesn't matter. It's not going to change anything. But let them let let the political consequences of them not voting do that. But by by their duty, they are supposed to vote. You know, James, I, there were a couple of times, if you remember the last couple of years, Schumer had wanted all the Democrats to vote present, uh, like on the Green New Deal and some things like that, just as a as a protest to what McConnell was doing. I, I didn't do that. I refused to do that. I just felt like my duty was there. The people of Alabama didn't send me there to, to dodge a question. And if the majority leader put it up there and it passed a, and, and got on the floor, it was my duty to vote one way or another, and I voted one way or another, and that's what these guys should do as well. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. But, but remember, I think the Constitution says they need two-thirds of the members voting. So if, if, if 10 Republican Senate I, say I'm not going to vote. Then you need two thirds of ninety. I think I, let's let's. I I think it's two thirds of the body, but I I'd have to double check on that because okay. my, my recollection it was two thirds of the body, but we can All right. we can double check that can, at some the, point. The good thing about this is we can edit anything that we want before we go. So right, we'll have somebody. <laughs> I don't have the slightest idea, but I'm betting the Jones. <laughs> I, I don't ever bet on my, you know, the governor of Louisiana, Earl Long, said to the attorney general of Louisiana, a guy named Jack Gremio, if you want to hide anything from Jack, stick it in the law book. That's a pretty good way to hide something from me. But well, well, our diligent fact checkers will be on this pronto. Albert? Yeah, Senator, <clears throat> you were sitting there a year ago, or just about a year ago today. You're one of 100 sitting there. Uh, I, I mean this seriously. What's it like? Uh, this is last year when you were there. It was only the third time in history that, that, that there had been a Senate trial. This is only the fourth time in, in American history. Uh, are you taking notes? Uh, do you get distracted? Do you, you know, think about the Alabama-Auburn football game? I mean, what do you do? You know, I, I got to tell you guys, I, I, I can't speak for – the other 99, but I can tell you how serious I took it. Um, you know, I, I really took it uh, as probably the most sacred duty that I'd had as a United States Senator. And it started back when I first saw the whistleblower complaint and read it. I, as a private lawyer, I did a lot of whistleblower work, both defending it as well as representing whistleblowers. And when I read that complaint, man, I knew that this was serious. And I told the staff, if, 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 if any of this comes to bears any fruit, we're going to see this over. And we started building our file back in September when it first started going. And I had two people assigned to it the whole time. Uh, we went back and forth. We took all the evidence in. We were gathering all. I read a ton of things, both history. I used to, James, you'd appreciate this. I used to carry this little book about the impeachment trial with me on an airplane uh, when I'm going back and forth to Birmingham, but I but I took the cover off of it and I replaced it with a cover about Buzz Aldrin because I didn't want people to know I was reading about the impeachment. <laughs> and and when when the trial first started, um, 
you know, we I did a really interesting exercise too, by the way, guys. Before we broke, after the bill of impeachment was was returned in the House, and before we broke for the Christmas holidays, I had six of my staff draw bl- uh, cards in, in in the blind. And three of them said guilty and three of them said not guilty. And I said, you just draw and pick one. And whatever whatever you draw, I want you to come back in three days and make the argument to me that they're either guilty or not guilty, depending on the card. Amazing exercise with these guys. Um, wow. Getting getting their views on this as I went in to study more during the Christmas holidays. And during the trial, I you know, I'm an old trial lawyer myself. And so when I'm in a trial, I'm taking notes like crazy. And I, I, I barely looked up from, from my notepads. I, I filled up almost seven legal pads and took 400 pages of notes uh, during that trial. And I, I, I write in blue and I had my red pen and I'd underline and I'd start and I'd make my own notes. And it, cause it was, I, I will tell you for a lot of people in the country, it was an easy call even before the trial started. For me, it wasn't. It was too sacred a duty for me to make that easy call. And I did everything I possibly could so that whenever I made a decision, I would be comfortable with that decision telling both people on the right and people on the left and people in the middle why I did what I did. And I was, at the end of the day, I was very comfortable with the decision I made. Senator, you served with over, I guess, 90 uh, of these current senators. If it were a private vote, I'm not saying that's a good idea. I think it's not. But if it were a private vote, what do you think it would be? I think yeah, I, I I can't tell you the number, but I think you'd get more than 67 votes to convict. Yeah, yeah. I am I am absolutely convinced of that. You would get more than 60. And 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 the and the best example is what just went on in the House when you had a private vote that kept Liz Cheney kept her job in the leadership, but when it got to a public vote, you had only a handful of people. Uh, voted um, uh, Republicans voted to strip, you know, the Georgia Congresswoman, the QAnon lady, uh, of her committee assignments. I think that's a perfect example of today's politics somewhere where the public vote would be different than the private vote. Yeah, that's really interesting. Let me pick up on something you said earlier that that, that, that these videos are so compelling that you, you may not need witnesses. I, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. But as you recall, last year, the Democrats made a big deal out of the Republicans' refusal to allow witnesses. I thought the Democrats were absolutely right. And as a great prosecutor, you know, even if you had the knockout witness, the best of all times, that you had others there to help build to the kids. Shouldn't shouldn't they at least consider calling some witnesses in that spirit? Well, they should consider it. But I guess the point I was making is, in the first impeachment trial, you had so much that went on behind closed doors. Right. Uh, you had John Bolton. You had Mick Mulvaney. You had all of these guys talking about all of these things involving Ukraine and Hunter Biden and everything else. And you needed those witnesses. I wrote an op-ed piece uh, in the Washington Post about the need for calling witnesses just along those lines. It, th- this is just a lot different. This was played out in the public. There were... There may have been some meetings going on, but this played out in the public so much that I don't think it's necessary. And I think those videos, you know, I, my, my experience sometimes with 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 jurors is that the show and tell can be a lot more powerful than a than a witness. Having said that, the the, the one or two things that I thought might ha- be appropriate 
is to call a couple of Capitol Police officers, because what I've read is a couple of those Capitol Police officers, from their experience as, as law enforcement officers, as almost as expert witnesses, said that when they heard what the president said at that rally, they thought to themselves, we're in for trouble. Yeah. And I think that that's a very, very salient point that could be made that you might not get on a on a video somewhere. Their reaction, what a law trained law enforcement would think, because you know if they're thinking this could be trouble, those those jack legs that are out there storm the Capitol, you know what they're hearing, or maybe one or two so, two so, of the protesters even, or the mob rather. Maybe, but that's a real risk. I mean, yeah. that's a real risk. Mm-hmm. I think right now you see they can they can get some of the information in there because some of them have made public statements. That's what I, I would try to use. That that's a don't don't put somebody on there where you don't know what the hell they're going to say, and you'll exactly. never know what those folks are going to say until they get there. Senator, yeah, excuse me. Excuse me. Okay, thank you. So let's talk about one senator in particular. A colleague of yours, Senator Shelby, he famously did not vote to convict President Clinton because he said that he took the time. He was, a, I think, he was a former a lawyer, as are you, that he read right. it. It applies. He's a kind of a he's a he's a kind of a quirky guy. Do you see any <laughs> circumstance where Senator Shelby could could you know he's not running again for re-election in twenty twenty two? And I, I think he might be one of the gettables here. I saw Senator Cassidy change Louisiana. I, I don't know that. but Yeah. I, I, you know, look, Richard and I, I talked a, a lot, and I agree with you. I, I think that he's one of the gettables. Now, you remember in the Clinton vote, he split his vote. He right. voted guilty on one and not guilty on another. But this, you know, this went right to the heart of him. He is a, he is a, he, you know, he, he has such a, a, a Gosh, an affection for the Senate and for the government, and whether you agree with him politically or, or not, he's got he's got to have been so offended by what he has seen with Trump uh, over the last uh, few weeks, what he saw on January sixth. Uh, and if you remember, he was one of those that you know he didn't vote for the challenges. He was one of those that stood strong, didn't vote for the challenges. Every other member of the Alabama delegation voted to sustain the challenges except for him and Terry Sewell, the lone Democrat in the House. But he stood strong that way. So I, I agree with you. I think he's gettable. Um, it, it, the House managers putting it together the right way can get to him um, because he's going to have his staff there, too. And they were all scared to death. I can tell you that. Right. I and- I mean, if you go and you look at people retiring, like Senator Burr, maybe Senator Portman, you know, or, or you look at Cassidy got reelected in 2020. I think if they went through and they looked at retirees and they looked at people that were up in 2026, they're probably more gettable than people that are up in 2022. That's just my political judgment. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. The other thing. The other thing, James, to look at is is this, and and if because if there's a if there's a couple of folks, if there's just two or two, maybe maybe three, that you could get close to nine or ten uh, Republicans there, then there's going to be some pressure on McConnell to do something to try to give those Republicans cover, whether or not they're they're leaving or not. But especially if you get a couple that are going to be up in 22 and 20 or 24, you get a couple of those folks who really want to vote guilty, 
McConnell could put could sway some people to give them some political cover because he's made some pretty strong statements too. Now he voted that it was unconstitutional, but he's made some pretty strong statements uh, about this whole episode. Right. I, I, I just think that the, that the justification is I thought it was unconstitutional. The Senate said it was. Therefore, it is. And I'm going to proceed from here. I mean, they do have some cover if, if they want to use it. If they're, they're not, well, that's right. Look, you, 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 you keep they've, got, they've got cover. But, the you know, the fact of the matter in, a, in, in criminal cases, there is a, a, a defense technique that, is, that you're not supposed to use and the judge is supposed to cut them off called nullification. And it's basically you admit the facts, but you're just saying this this man or this woman shouldn't be prosecuted because of X, Y, Z. You know, he robbed the bank because his di- child was dying of cancer and he needed the money to pay for the chemo or something, you know, something right. Right. like that. It's an, a nullification. And that's what they're making. That's the argument that they're making, that this is we believe it's unconstitutional. So it's a nullification. I quite frankly thought that the David Schoen, while he ended up making some decent points on the legal, I, I thought his initial thing was insulting uh, to uh, the Democrats in the Senate uh, and Democrats in general. I just thought he, he, he made it all about uh, Trump. And this is not that. I mean, there were what happened on January 6th was just unbelievable. And to just say this is a purely political question because people don't like Donald Trump. I thought it was insulting. All right, Albert? Yeah, Senator, uh, Alabama is probably the heart of Trump country. How would you, I think a lot of these Republicans are scared. They're scared of the base. Uh, how, how, how is Trump standing in your state right now? Has it, has it eroded, uh, and if so, at all uh, significantly, or is he almost as strong as he was? I, I think it's hard to say, Al, because with COVID, it's so hard to gauge uh, what's really going on out there. I mean, you would think he would still be pretty strong because you've got the Republican Party <clears throat> trying to pass resolutions saying he's been the greatest president of all time. You got, you know, seven, six out of our seven members of Congress and one of our senators who voted to uphold the challenges. I think he's pretty strong, but I, I still, but I also believe that there are a lot of people, I'm just going to give put a lot of faith in, in people of Alabama that what they saw and the result um, that they saw on January 6th was something that they truly believe should have never happened and that Donald Trump bears some responsibility on it. It, it. it just doesn't, you know, it's not getting the same kind of play here like it did. He's gone. He's left office. He doesn't have a Twitter feed, so he's not stoking it every day. And if he's not stoking something every day, that tendency tends to, that 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 support tends to wane. James, you have a final one? Well, I can't, I can't let this conversation end without a discussion of SEC football. And <laughs> I remember had a, a, you know, LSU, had, we had a remarkable 2019. Alabama had a remarkable 2020. You know, Auburn has had made some significant changes. Uh, where do you see the, the, do you see the tide as being a justified number one preseason? And what do you think the, kind of immediate future Auburn football is. Yeah, I, I think that I think Alabama mayor is likely to be a preseason number one. They've still got a lot of horses coming back. Now they lost that quarterback, their running back. They lost Devontae Smith, who I believe from the very beginning was the best player from, in college from football Louisiana. this year. From Louisiana, I might add, from Amy, but never mind. Well, I, I, 
Who, 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 who really? Who really gives a damn about that, James? He played at Alabama, for God's sake. So, another one. But I think I think Alabama just reloaded. They had what everybody says is the best recruiting class in history. These guys are going to make. Some of them will make an impact next year, and certainly the next. I think they're going to be perennially right there at the top. Auburn is going to have to rebuild some things. I think they they missed out on some recruits this year. I think bringing someone in that is not it has really no experience in SEC football. And the one thing we we can certainly agree on is SEC football is unique. And I think it's going to take him a little bit for his recruiting and all to pick that back up. But I think everybody's going to be competitive. What I really hope is next year we get to go back to football games like normal. And and everybody everybody's had vaccines and we can have some regular games again because I missed it. I didn't go to a single game this year, and I was very disappointed, especially with the team that we had, that Alabama had this year. It's just extraordinary. Oh, man. Senator, Senator, this is the question you've probably been asked for. Toughest possible question I can ask you. Who was the greatest Alabama football coach of all times, Bear or Nick? Well, who who was the greatest was Bear Bryant. (laughs) But who is the greatest is clearly, I think, uh, is is going to be Nick Saban. Uh, what he has done in this modern era of football uh, and winning uh, seven national championships, one down in LSU and six at Alabama, is just really unbelievable. In the short time he's done it, you know, what, 12 or 13 years at Alabama, and it, it's just an, uh, amazing, um, his recruiting process, his ability to get great coaches. And, you know, we, we turn over assistant coaches at Alabama – you know, like the Waffle House turns over pancakes. I mean, it is just incredible that he's able from year after year after year to present, national, you know, teams that, that compete for the national championship. So in my book, clearly Nick Saban. I, I, I so agree with it. And, and they're always losing assistance. And everybody plays three years and go to the pros. He, I, I like him as LSU. I'm sorry that we lost him. I'm, I'm particularly sorry that, that y'all got him. But I think he's the best <laughs> college football coach in history. I mean, I really do. He just, yeah, just yeah. unbelievable I, what that guy does. And I think he runs a program that has some integrity to it also. So I'm, I, I'm I agree good. with that. And he, he just stays, he stays focused. He stays focused on recruiting. He stays focused on his process. It is all about it. And, and, uh, I think it's going to be hard for anybody to surpass him as the greatest coach of all time. Well, I, we, we had the Nick Saban of guests this week at Doug Jones. Senator, we can't thank you enough. <laughs> yeah, this has really, you. really been uh, edifying and, and interesting and fun. Thank you. It's my pleasure, guys. Anytime. Thank love you, to come sir. back sometime. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. It was a Hi, James. great, okay. great, great. 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 Thank you. Hey, today we're welcoming an excellent sponsor to the show. Welcome, IP Vanish. So, what is IP Vanish, James? Well, you know, I, I feel like I'm. They, they have an algorithm that every time I look at best hotels in Rome, I get fifteen people trying to sell me a hotel room in Rome. And, and I think this is a, a much needed thing for people uh, who are out there that listen to our show. It's a virtual private network, a VPN for short. It's a super important tool. It helps you safely browse the internet. There's some things you don't want people to know that are perfectly, you know, above board. I mean, your Rome hotel example is one. You don't want to get those 15 uh, cards and letters and emails. You can use VPN on your computers, tablets, phones, even things 
like your Fire Stick when you're streaming media. When you use a VPN, your data is encrypted, all your data. So what you're reading, what you're searching, what you're watching, whatever it is you're doing is private. Yep. And, and of course, it would be terrible for my reputation if somebody found out that I just go to completely moral, ethical, and, and non-controversial sites on my computer. It would like it would be bad. It would be a bad for my reputation because people don't expect that from me. I suspect if they did know what I went to, they would not be disappointed. But that's <laughs> that's another question. No, I think that's I think you've reached an excellent point there. Uh, I, I think that's yeah. It's only three forty nine three dollars and forty nine cents a month for just three dollars and forty nine cents or twenty seven dollars and ninety nine cents a year. You can get help protect your online privacy and security. With IP Vanish, you get anonymous IP addresses, so you can't be tracked by anyone on the web. You can circumvent any online censorship, since IP Vanish has more than 1,500 servers in 70-plus locations. And if you get protection, even when you're using public Wi-Fi, I mean, that's pretty good. Remember, when IP Vanish, all your data is encrypted. No one can stoop on what you're doing, James, whether you're doing moral stuff or whatever. Well, I always believe in the straight and narrow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is you go to ipvanish.com slash war room to claim your 65 percent savings they plan starting at just three dollars and 49 cents a month or 27 dollars 99 cents a year this is the time to sign up with a discount and their current promotional offerings you can get a vpn for 65 percent off their usual offering ip vanish is the best of the best even rated 4.7 on a five scale on Trustpilot. And that's more than, with more than 6,000 reviews. So show these guys some love. Remember it's ipvanish.com slash warroom to get the deal and start protecting yourself online. Hey Sam, but James, I have, a, I have a question for you now. Can you think of any time at any office where there has been a bigger drop in IQ than when Tommy Tuberville replaced Doug Jones. Well, maybe the only thing I'll put up is the Secretary of the Energy under Obama, I think, won a Nobel that, Prize. That's and a they went to Perry. That was a pretty good job. Okay. No, that's that a I mean, Rick Perry yeah. wanted to eliminate three departments that couldn't remember what they were and then became the head of one of them. But that, you're right. right. I think, I think it would be a good final, you know, a good championship. That is a good discussion. Maybe some of our uh, uh, listeners can can uh, mail us and get other examples where you went from the, the, the great to the utterly horrific. But, you know, Senator Jones, and, you know, you think about making seven pages of notes and, you know, studying and that, that kind of dedication to, to the law. Uh, you look at his record as, as a prosecutor, uh, you know, Get these cases and these the, the scummy guys blowing up children. Uh, the United States needs people like Doug Jones, and I'm, I'm confident that President Biden is going to find a, a extraordinary role for him to play going forward. Oh, he he is a great public servant and has a lot of public service left in him. Uh, and the only thing I can say good about Tommy Tuberville is James. He's going to give us lots of laughs the next couple of years. Yeah, and I got to tell you, just as somebody that has a good-natured rivalry with Alabama, and, and you know, I, I was kind of the fact that Alabama has the stupidest senator in the United States Senate. There's it, it, some source of, of Schadenfreude in me that kind of likes that. 
And I want to be sure that that that, that Coach Tuberville gets front and center and gets the the attention that he deserves for his colossal stupidity. <laughs> You know, I, I may have told it to you before, but at the, at the 2004 New York Convention, Republican Convention, I was in the same hotel as the Alabama delegation, uh, and I would be on the same elevator with them. And the first couple of days, they gave me a very hard time because they were all big Bob Novak fans. And then I, I learned the lesson, which it is when, when you got along with 20 Alabama delegates on the elevator, you just said, uh, you know, all burner tied, and they start fighting among themselves. So that's a good idea. It, it, it it works every time. <laughs> I, I think that's the most fierce rivalry there is. I mean, I, you know, the Mike and Oregon have a, have, have a thing, but, but, I, but that, that's a, that, they talk that stuff on talk radio in Alabama, yeah. 365 days a year. Listen, I yeah. thought, I thought the Senator made some really interesting points uh, on, uh, on impeachment. I, I, I think he's right that there conceivably could be one or two shifts. You guys identified Richard Shelton. I think he would be the most likely. Uh, but 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 also he said, and I think he's absolutely right, if this were a private vote, there would be well over two-thirds. Right. They would. And, and you know, Albert, if there's a number, all right, it's not 67, but there's a number that really gives this thing legitimacy. And I think if they get I have the over under at 58 and a half, and I'm going to leave it there. I, I, they're at 56 now, presumably. And I, I think I think they're going to pick up some in this. I, the, the presentation, the facts are just overwhelming, and I know the politics of it, and I understand all of that, but I'm, 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 I'm sticking with the over at 58 and a half. Well, I, as I said, I guess it's the same as last week. I think it's probably going to be more like 56 or 57. But I think that sends a message. I mean, there have there 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 has never been uh, as many members of the other party voting for uh, an impeachment conviction as as there's going to be in the next week. And uh, we know a number of the others are are off on this. Uh, you know, they're using this great excuse of uh, "Well, I'm sorry, there's something wrong with the procedure." As a former Republican senator, Jack Danforth said, "I mean, he is the pillar of the Republican establishment. Former Attorney General, you know, three or four term senator." And he said very clearly, if this isn't an impeachable offense, what is? Uh, and right. so I think the case has been made, uh, even if they don't top your 58 and a half. Well, I, I think so, too. But I, I, I'm, I'm going to be curious to see. Because, it, it, you know, at some point, somebody's going to have a hard time voting not to convict. Because the facts are just, and I understand that Catherine had a kind of crappy presentation. But they, he didn't have much to work with. You know, if you try to build a building out of silly putty, you're not gonna you're not gonna succeed. Well, I, I I was hoping there would be cutaways allowed in that televised um, uh, session yesterday, so you could see the reaction of some of the Republican senators. But it was described by I know reporters like Lisa Desjardins and others who said that uh, some of them just just tried to avoid contact. Some of them just sort of looked frozen because it was so stunning, and they realized. As, as Senator Jones said, not, not they were there, their staff was there, some of their families were there, and from a number at that time, in real time, they thought it was life-threatening, and people died. So, Albert, tell me about fun rides. It seems like something interesting. What do we yeah, know it about it? 
you know, in 2021, a truly diversified portfolio needs more than the traditional mix of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. It needs private real estate. Studies have shown that portfolios with an allocation of private real estate generally delivered a better risk-adjusted return with more annual income and lower volatility over the past two decades. Decades, thanks to its track record of consistent performance through multiple market cycles. With Fundrise, this level of powerful diversification is now available to you. Fundrise provides access to diversified portfolios of private real estate to all investors with their industry-leading, easy-to-use platform. Whether you're looking to add stable cash flow via dividends or prefer long-term growth through appreciation, Fundrise makes investing in private real estate as easy as investing in stocks, bonds, or mutual funds. Fundrise's team of real estate professionals carefully vets and actively manages all of their real estate projects. And with their easy-to-use website, you can track your portfolio performance and watch as properties across the country are acquired, improved, and operated via dynamic asset updates. See for yourself how 130,000 investors have built a better portfolio with private real estate. It takes just a few minutes to get started. Go to fundrise.com slash warroom today. That's fundrise.com slash warroom. Fundrise.com slash warum or look for the link in our show notes. Okay, James, we love this segment. Questions from our devoted listeners all around the globe. Uh, the first one is from Jack, who's in Erie, Pennsylvania, but he's worried about his neighboring state of Ohio. And I'm going to slightly um, um, change his question because he says, why can't the Democrats ever win in Ohio since 2000? They actually did. Uh, Obama won a couple times. But I think his point is right. Compared to most of the Midwestern states, Michigan and Pennsylvania, which to join them, uh, Ohio is a much tougher slog for Democrats. Uh, Obama, uh, excuse me, Trump won there by, I think, nine points while, while uh, Biden was carrying Michigan and Pennsylvania. Why is Ohio so tough? Uh, you, yeah, I, my guess is that you probably have a disproportionately high number of white non-college that generally, you know, drives dri- drives that number. And the Republican Party has traditionally been pretty strong in Ohio. I mean, it, it is probably some hangover from that. They, they were very good at organizing and, you know, uh, there's a real Republican tradition in Ohio that you, you don't have as much in Pennsylvania or, or, or even Michigan or, or, or Wisconsin, if you will. Uh, so, I mean, I, I guess a lot of that carries over. And the Democrats, we've not offered up. I mean, Sherwood Brown proved that you can be a Democrat and win a statewide election in Ohio. And I just hope that as we go through this process, and if it is 2022 open seat, that we pick, and I don't know who it is, and we'll, we'll know as we go forward, we pick the strongest possible general election candidate that, that we can come up with. And, you know, it, it, it is, a, I definitely, it, it, it's a, it's not a purple state, it's a pink state. But we would have said the same thing about Georgia. And, you know, things change. And let's see what, where this thing ends up in 2022. But I think we're going to be back in there. But there, there's some things that work against us in, in 
in, in Ohio that maybe don't work as bad against yeah, us. Yeah, it does go other. back to their organizing, all the way back to Ray Bliss and Jim and Jim Rhodes. But I remember the state chair uh, and and uh, Ohio Democratic state chair. You know, wonderful guy named David Pepper told me every time, every election night, uh, he gets he gets blue envy when he looks at Pennsylvania. And I said, why? He said, all those blue suburbs. We don't have blue suburbs in Ohio. Now they have a few, but nothing like they do in Pennsylvania. Uh, and, and that's, um, but you're right. Sherrod Brown has proven, you know, time and time again, that you can win out there. And if they can clone a Sherrod Brown or someone with that kind of appeal, both to whatever blue suburbs they have, the inner city and some of those, uh, working class, non-college educated whites, uh, particularly in Southeastern, uh, Ohio, you can win that race. So it's a good question, Jack. And I think the cultural arrogance of a lot of Democrats just hurts us. You know, people agree. You tell, people agree with us. If you go through every issue from the minimum wage to, to, to yeah. climate to row, to, I can't literally think of an issue where people don't side with the Democratic well, and, point of view. And, and you're right. And that's what Sherrod Brown clearly doesn't convey because he doesn't have any cultural arrogance. No. Hey, James, our next question is from Lamas in Syria. And she says that we were kind enough to read her email before. Someone must send her our podcast. But this time she wants to know, uh, uh, she's asking about the Muslim ban. She said, I want to bring my kids to visit the United States for so long. After the COVID-19 crisis is over, is it possible to apply for a visa yet? are still impossible for Syrians. Here's what I understand. Biden has lifted the Muslim ban, uh, but there's still, it takes a while to work through some of the implementation of that and some of the particulars, and they're still going to have tests. But I think, you know, Lamas, I would advise you to start whenever you can to apply, and it may be within a matter of months, COVID, um, if COVID is at least uh, in a manageable state, that you'll be able to do that. I hope so. Well, I, I tell you, all of you told me places that um, 76 I, I haven't been and I really want to go to, Damascus would be in the top three. And, yeah. and my my dream is I hope you can get to the United States because I, I know personally you have a lot to offer. But I would love to go to Syria and have lunch with you. And I, I love the climate in the Mideast. I actually like the food. I've been to Jordan, and I'm sure it's not the you know, the, the produce there is just out of this world. I've been to Israel a lot. Uh, so I, I hope you can come to the United States one day before I die. I'd, I'd love to go to Syria and sit outdoors in your wonderful climate and eat a lot of that. I, fresh I love food. that idea, James. Maybe we can persuade Simon to let us do a podcast from, yes, from, from, uh, from the Damascus if that awful yeah. regime will ever yeah, I'm, I'm so, I'm so many, you know, I just went there. I was yeah. a stopover coming back from uh, from Egypt. Uh, so the only time I've been in Syria was at the airport for about an hour. But but I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'd love to see it. Brian in Long Island, New York, I'm going to, James, ask you to take the view that lawsuits uh, from both Smartmatic and Dominion are significant as possible checks on irresponsible conspiracy and true fake news journalism and legal advocacy, uh, especially if there are significant damages. What are your thoughts on their possible effects and whether private citizen Donald Trump should or could be brought into them as a defendant? Well, I'll put it this way. We know some some awfully good lawyers. Uh, I can't tell you their names, but their initials are Walter Delegate and Seth Waxman. And both of them, as I appreciate it, think that, that this lawsuit it has some merit. 
And one of the things I did my class last night at LSU on this is is Smartmatic a public figure? I don't want to get too too into it. I'm not a First Amendment lawyer by any stretch of the imagination. But I think we could agree with our limited legal knowledge that the, the standard is much different if you're not a public figure than you are a public figure. And I think that Smartmatic, particularly in Dominion to some extent, have a good argument that they're not public figures. Uh-huh. And the, the, the kind of excruciating standard that exists in, in the famous case called New York Times versus Sullivan, a, a reckless disregard for the facts and actual malice may not apply to it. I think I think if people want to settle this for it probably won't go to trial, but this is not this is going to be settled for something more than a nuisance settlement. James, I, 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 I've spent a lot of time talking to great lawyers about about the uh, Sullivan case and the and the test you have to meet. I think even if they were to be adjudged uh, a uh, uh, a public firm or in the in the in the public sphere. Reckless disregard is an important criterion, and I think if there's any ever a case, if you look at what some of the the Newsmax and Fox people did, if that's not a reckless disregard of facts, it's hard to think what is. So I, I'm not sure. I agree, it's probably going to be settled, but uh, this is this is a terrible case for uh, for those yeah. who, who who worship at the shrine of Sullivan, which I do, because um, uh, I I think it's a there was a plain reckless disregard of facts. Well, I, look, I, I'm not here. I'm, I, I'm and, and, and the, the other test is They're apologizing. You know, they're doing like hostage change. Newsmax kicks some guy off the air. Right. I mean, their lawyers telling them they're in trouble. That's pretty clear. They they got a they got an issue, and this is not going to go away uh, unless they pay a lot of money to 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 these companies. Smartmatic only does voting. Machines in L.A. County, right? And they, they got—I think they got a really strong case here. And the Dominion, um, I mean, they've got stuff about this is just absolutely—I mean, beyond reckless. Uh, and, and they know it. Fox knows it. Newsmax knows it. Why do you think they fired Lou Dobbs? I mean, they—they're—they're they're gearing up for you know for settlement talks here. What is your little boy at five five o'clock in the afternoon without Lou Dobbs there, isn't there? Sure. I miss um, I miss Lou. I gotta tell you. I miss oh, Lou. <laughs> I say, you know, Lou was the Tommy Tuberville of cable television. There were lots of laughs there. But um, next Corey in Key West, Florida. This is a good question. Will Biden or any other president continue to bestow the American Medal of Freedom? After Trump's defilement, after giving it to Rush Limbaugh and Devin Nunes and Jim Jordan, would anyone accept it? The answer is yes. You don't let him set that standard. I mean, this has been given to some of the greatest of Americans, uh, Father Hesburgh and and Matthew Ridgway and Henry Aaron and Muhammad Ali. I mean, of course you would. I don't expect the Jim Jordans and the Devin Nuneses and the Rush Limbaugh's to be replicated unless we're dumb enough to elect another Trump president. So yeah, I hope Joe Biden does uh, restore it to the prestige that it is so richly deserved ever since it was started by President Kennedy in 1963. You know, it just, um, of course, it's a very good question. It just sends me into deeper rage because I'd forgotten about how he he has just diminished everything that you can imagine. And to diminish this thing that has gone to like 
so many worthy people. I mean, you, you, you just can't imagine it. And to taunt, just everything he touches, he tarnishes. I mean, it's really unbelievable. What, what a, just a horrific, awful, not just president he was, person he is. It, 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 it's nauseating. The more you think about it, the sicker you get. And just when you think you, you, you can't, you can't get any worse, you're reminded of something that, yeah, he's actually worse than you think. Yeah, yeah, every day. Uh, they're good. Uh, Seamus, we, you know, we, we got a great following down under, as they say. Seamus from Australia wants to ask, why doesn't America have mandatory voting like some other democracies? Well, I've actually like talked to people about this and thought about it. A, a lot of democracies, like if you, you live in Austria, Israel, or, or other parliamentary democracies, you kind of vote once every five years. I mean, you think of all the elections we have. If, if, if I, I'm just taking up in Orleans Parish is where I vote, okay? I vote presidential elections, statewide elections. I think there's seven different constitutionally elected officers in Louisiana. I vote for the sheriff, the district attorney, the council person, the mayor, the school board. I, I mean, there's an election every year, you know, elections all of the time. So do you just, and it's easy to say in, 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 in constitutionally, in, you have to vote for, in Brazil, you have to vote for president. I don't think, it, it would be very hard to enforce in the United States because our system is just so much different than anybody else's. And there's also a, a, a great uh, American tradition is, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't vote. I don't, I think it just encourages them. George Carlin, if you go Google George Carlin politicians, he has this hilarious riff. And his logic is, is that if you vote, I can blame you. If you don't vote, I can't blame you. But that's a, just kind of a quirky American thing that I don't think is going to change. But I always play to George Paul's politicians to my because I think it's just a, a brilliant take on, on American politics. And I, I love George Carlin. What can I say? First of all, it's not going to happen. And I agree with you, it shouldn't happen. But the focus ought to be trying to make it easier to vote and to stop the Republican effort, which has already begun after this election, to make it harder for people to vote. And uh, H.R. 1, uh, the House bill, will be a big step, a significant step towards achieving that. But that ought to be the goal of people who believe in more voting. Uh, I don't want to make people vote, but I want to make it easier for people to vote, not harder. And that's what the Republicans are trying to do. Yeah, let, let's give a shout out to Fred, our dear friend Fred Wertheimer, who's been on this, been on this for, for 20 years. Who deserves a, a, a gold medal for tenacity. Well, and, he sure does. And he's, he's right. right. And he's right, too. Yeah. All right, James, one more from Littleton, Colorado. Joy. Joy said, and this is this is good. How should Democrats reach out to Latino voters in 2022 and beyond? She raises some questions. Should it be through an amnesty program for DACA recipients and their parents, through comprehensive immigration reform, or grassroots efforts in Texas, Arizona, Nevada, and Florida? Uh, they didn't do nearly as well, they being the Democrats, last time as they hoped. They did not. And I'm the Congressman from Arizona, and I'm probably mispronounced his name, so Congressman, I want to apologize because I, I mispronounced everybody's name. Uh, Congressman 
Gallego. And he makes more sense on this than anybody that I've listened to. And, and the, the Democrats don't try to even understand the, the, the nuances uh, in that vote. And, and nobody, and I'm going you know, to get in trouble for saying this, but he made the point, they don't they call each other Latinx, right? And, and the Democratic attitude toward this block of voters has been sort of determined by a bunch of politically correct language police that doesn't relate to the way people live. It just really doesn't. And it's, it was pointed out in, in South Texas, of course, we did notoriously bad in Miami-Dade. We did notoriously bad in the Rio Grande Valley. And you can't imagine the number of people that are employed in the Rio Grande Valley in border enforcement. And you probably hard, be hard-pressed to find people that are more skeptical of open borders than that block of voters that live here. And, and once you, if the Democrats just went and talked about raising the minimum wage, talked about expanding health care, right, talked about these things that really affect people, we would do a lot better if we wouldn't let these, these woke-ats determine strategy in the Democratic Party and had a strategy that was directed toward people and their dreams and their aspirations and their needs, we would do a lot better. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I think that, uh, that, that yeah, uh, I think certainly the Biden administration, uh, either by executive fiat or even better paying get legislation, ought to create an amnesty program for DACA recipients. They ought to try to get a comprehensive immigration reform. I'm very skeptical that it can be done and there ought to be grassroots efforts. But, but, but the other thing, James, a lot of those voters, what they care about, yeah, they care about some of those immigration issues, but they care about health care. They care about education. They care about the same things that everyone else cares about. And it's condescending for Democrats to say that they're going to campaign among among Hispanic, Latino populations, mainly on immigration issues, because it's much bigger than that. They have a special problem in Florida, maybe still with Cuba, Venezuela, but that's 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 unique. But even in Florida, before this election, they were doing pretty well. Right, and what they really care about is the United States. If you, if you look at enlistment statistics, the number of people of, uh, I guess I'm gonna say Hispanic origin, because I don't know anything else to say, that that volunteer serving the armed forces is disproportionately high. Yeah. And these as opposed to people like you and I who are just born here, all right, a, a, a lot of this population wanted to be here. They're, they're citizens because they wanted to live in the United States. They just didn't win some birth lottery in the 1940s. They actually came here. And I think we, we should appreciate and honor an appeal to their sense of patriotism yeah. as opposed to the, the sense of whether you're Guatemalan or, or, or Cuban or Venezuelan or, or, or whatever. I, I think we make a big, big error in that because these are people who have been washed in the blood. Hey, we're all trying to eat better, but healthy breakfast doesn't have to be boring. It doesn't have to taste bad. Magic Spoon proves that. They have amazing flavors without all the bad stuff. They've released a brand new variety pack featuring peanut butter, oh God, peanut butter, 
And can you believe they released that as a limited edition flavor in 2020 and sold out three times? Peanut butter has gotten so much love, they decided to keep it permanent and add it to the best sellers variety pack, which also includes frosty, fruity, and cocoa. James, I like some of the others, but I want to get my hands on some of that peanut butter. Yeah, you know, my, my thing with Magic Spoon is this, is that if you do a matrix and you go, taste good, bad, bad for you, generally, the, the lower you are on the taste good scale, the lower you are on the bad for you. My point right. is, is this is a product that is really good for you. You can look up the, it's a nutritional powerhouse, but it also is a, it has a, a, a flavor profile that is really good and, and has some complexity to it. I, I, I cannot literally, can't think of anything other than maybe an apple that really tastes good and is really good for you. I, I, like, I like to like apples. I think, I think a good crisp apple is, is good and good for you. But, but it doesn't matter. It, that, that's a rare combination you get, and they deliver that. Sure is. Zero sugar, 13, 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs, and only 140 calories in a serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, GMO-free. James, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. And, and, and I'll go back to the same thing is it tastes good. All right. Some of this stuff, you know, like shredded wheat is really good for you. It, it doesn't have the same taste profile that this does. I promise. Yeah, well, my kid down in Raleigh is hoarding that peanut butter. So I want to get some of it back from that. Go to magicspoon.com slash war room to grab a variety pack and try it today. Be sure to use our promo code war room. That's all one word at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in the product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash warroom and use the code warroom to save $5 off. That's magicspoon.com slash warroom or look for the link in our show notes. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. Okay, our outrage of the week. There are so many candidates, James. Why don't you start? Well, I, I'm like an old crack addict. I can't get off the New York Times. I swear that I'm going to stop making them the outrage, but they just keep supplying material. Let's take the case of Mr. Donald McNeil who is acknowledged to be one of the best science reporters that there is. And according to John Shape, that's the facts I'm being I'm relied on, he was doing a for-profit tour of young people in Peru, and somebody mentioned that a 12-year-old had mentioned, a, 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 to put it mildly, a racially insensitive word. And he asked for what, what, what context. Then in, in its sort of brilliance, the, the paper of record of the United States, of which, by the way, I pay good money, subscribe to it, have it on my, my, my computer also, said, well, this is bad, then it's not so bad, and then they fired the guy. And the, the, the sheer stupidity of this whole thing is just staggering. And I, who runs that railroad? Uh, and they have thousands of, of, of dedicated journalists, and they, they have a great perch in American journalism. But that that place has got some serious issues. And I don't know what they are, and it's not my job to figure it out. 
But this whole Donald McNeil thing was a, a, a joke. Well, J- James, I have, you know, better sources than John Shade on this because they're people who've been inside the New York Times. And I'll tell you who runs the place and who I think is the culprit here is the publisher, A.G. Salzberger. Uh, Dean McKay, the editor, is taking a lot of flack. But this is, you know, this is really triple jeopardy for McNeil. He did something on some cruise he went on, like some trip with students, and he apparently repeated uh, uh, some poem or some phrase that had, had a very offensive word in it. People complain about it. The Times disciplined him. Fine. Uh, it comes out again from a, a, a piece in the Daily Beast. Dean Bacay, the editor, looks at it and says it was outrageous, but there was an intent. Uh, and so, therefore, we punished him. We're not going to fire him. And then a bunch of staffers go to the publisher and the publisher says, no, we're going to fire him. And intent matters. It's the same thing they did with James Bennett, the editorial page editor. Their standards shift. And apparently they have a publisher uh, who is very easy to pressure. And I, I agree the whole pro- if he said something really terribly outrageous and offensive and racist, then he should have been fired in the first place. And if he wasn't, Dean Bacay is a is a Saint Aug guy, some Jones, okay? Mm-hmm. It, but it doesn't matter. Somebody runs the railroad. AG still the same railroad. Yeah. Right? And and every time it, it seems to on the outside that there there's confusion and, and there's changing of, of, of policies. And it, I just got, you know, I don't want, I don't like, again, I'm not obsessed with it, but to just keep doing stupid things. And how do you not call them out for doing stupid things? Yeah. That That's my general thing. And I don't give a shit if it's the, the publisher or the editor. Or well, the, yeah, the, you do because you, you want to know who's in charge. And, and, yeah, and that's who, who makes the ultimate decision, and that's the publisher. And uh, but right. I agree, it's been a it's been a really really bad time on those issues. Um, you know, it's been a bad time, James, in a lot of ways. And there's so many outrages in Washington. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna shift subjects totally. I'm gonna go to sports. And the National Football League deserves a lot of credit for pulling off the season, the Super Bowl, with limited atten- uh, attendance. But, you know, you look across the landscape of professional college basketball, dozens of games are being canceled each week due to the virus. I think we've turned the corner. Uh, I'm impressed with what the Biden administration is doing. But the months ahead are still dangerous. And I fear it'll be summer at the earliest before you and I are sitting in the Nationals baseball park. But the most worrisome to me is the 2020 Olympics now scheduled for July 2021 in Tokyo. 12,000 athletes, tens of thousands of officials and coaches. Are there going to be fans there or not? And then the head of the Tokyo Olympics, Yoshiro Mori, recently said, the problem with women is they talk too much in meetings. Now, the Olympic (laughs) committees have a long, disreputable history going back to the 1936 games uh, in Berlin. But Mori should be fired, and these games should be postponed for at least several months before we can give some kind of assurance that it's safe. Yeah, I actually have some experience. I helped to try to get a guy elected president of IOC, and uh, we, we, we did like Japan did in World War II. We came in second. <laughs> Which, but I mean, I, that, that whole thing is, is just riff with, with 
corruption and backdoor dealing and everything that you can imagine. However, I will say this. If anybody could possibly pull it off, and I don't know if it's possible to pull it off, maybe the Japanese can do it. They, they are a, a, a very, you know, efficient people. And if it's possible to put this on safely, if, if I had to go with one country to do it, I, 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 I may go with Japan. Well, they, they'd be one in the top five, maybe. But I don't like the idea that a guy who's running, I mean, half these athletes now are almost right. half are women. And a guy who said the problem with women yeah, is they talk right. too much in meetings. I, I, I got a problem with that. Right. I, I, look, I'm not, I'm not defending that. I mean, it's like a really dumb thing to say. And I, I, and I, you know, I'm much more of admired the way that the Germans have dealt with their history than the Japanese have dealt with their with, with their history. And it's like like all histories, and including ours, it, it can be pretty odious at times. But uh, you know, there, there also is a, a lot to admire about Japan and their efficiency and. Yeah, if, if like I said, if it's possible, that they would be a leading candidate to pull this thing off. Well, let's 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 wait till the fall and see if they can do it. I right, think, uh, right, right, right. It would be better then. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. And remember to check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. It's what makes this podcast happen. To keep up with us every week, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week to analyze what the Senate did, the trial of Donald J. Trump, second trial, impeachment trial, and another show as we continue our War Room planning in 2021. Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. 
From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash audioboom, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom. <laughs> 